taking time to work with your hands is the most human experience that you can have. And through that comes all the love you can give to somebody. My two sisters and I, we actually rode the horse to school. That's how far it was. They was keeping me alive all them years, and you know, because they said I should have died years ago. Take a bundle of scrap, clothes, rags, whatever you had, tie them up, soak them in kerosene, and throw them to one another. That was neat and nice. This is Alabama Folk, where we go deep with artists and makers who carry on traditions passed down through the generations. Through their lives, we discover the many histories, cultures, communities, and landscapes that make us Alabama Folk. I'm your host, Emily Blavos. All right, all right. This week, Betty Anderson guides us through herbal remedies, lye soap, and stick dolls, part of a life cycle of making practiced for generations in G's Bend, where the famous quilts are made. In fact, Betty's grandmother played a leading role in introducing G's Bend quilts to the world. My grandmother was Minna Coleman. She was responsible for getting them all organized to sell the quilts that they sold back during the Civil Rights Movement. She was involved in getting queer soul. They went to New York and, and uh, Chicago and all over the world. She was responsible for getting them to open up the um, Freedom Quilting Bee so that they could have a place to quilt because they was all quilting in her house, ONG's being. But quilting was only part of what these women could do. Their families had farmed for generations. So when the New Deal brought a co-op to G's Bend in 1937, the community already knew how to produce, but now they had a way to sell. By the time Betty was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, her grandmothers were making and selling all kinds of things through the co-op, drawing on the skills and traditions of their own grandmothers. All that was handed down through slavery, with the soap making and the caning of the chairs and, and the bass wheat and you know, and furniture making. They did everything over there. They did pottery, they canned, they preserved, they uh, sold, they raised cows, they raised hogs, pigs, horses, goats. They made goat soap. Both of Betty's grandmothers were also fluent in herbs, and Betty took a special interest in them as a child. I was more into the herb than anyone else in my family because I was sick. I was always a sicker child. She had sickle cell anemia, but it was undiagnosed. The local doctor knew Betty had some type of blood disorder, but wasn't sure what it was. Her paternal grandmother, Maggie Anderson, often treated Betty with herbs. Because the sickle cell, I would have bad aches, you know, my legs, I couldn't walk, and you know, I just couldn't function. And she would take these herbs and wrap me up in rags, just, you know, soak with this stuff and and bought from trees and give me these tonnes of drugs. And then I would be fine. She used to use a lot of eucalyptus. Mm -hmm. She would use a lot of pine, like the rosin sap. She would take this stuff from the tree at different seasons, though. She had different times to collect this sap in these bottles. I never knew until I got grown what miniweed tea was. I get sick now to think about it, but miniweed was the cow manure. They would collect that when it dry, and they would put it in little sacks, and they would boil that, and you would, they would put honey with it, and you had to drink it. And they called it miniweed because it was miniweed, because the cows ate all yeah. types of weed. They would take, like, the flower sacks and have it tied with a little screen that she would 
take some out and boil it. Whenever I had a fever, I used to get nosebleed, and they would take the blood and put it over the, the door, the passway of the door where you go in and out, and it stopped my nose from bleeding. And then I had to wear these little things around my necks, you know, <laughs> and little sats. These remedies were used not only for Betty, but for anyone in the community who got sick. Any kind of sickness, anything, you had a headache, you had a stomach ache, they had something for everything. With a lot of leafy green vegetables, you would boil and give you the juice. You know, all different type of teas they would boil. They use a lot of turpentine, and, and they use a lot of um, lard. They would use that fat as a carry, because they would put turpentines and stuff in that lard and make like a paste and rub your chest, and then they would put like a hot towel, so they would break up all this congestion and stuff in you, take you outside, and they would build a fire, and they would put this water, and they would put this stuff in this water, and then they would cover your head with like a... Quill or something. Yeah. So you'd be you, you, you had to inhale stinging. all this yeah. sting. You know? Wow. wow. Yeah. And it worked. It worked. <laughs> it worked. Betty's grandmother also visited the local voodoo doctor, Mr. Gordon Wright. My grandmother, Miss Maggie, she would go to this voodoo doctor, which was right along the place where we would farm at. And she would get these herbs and these tonics. It was kind of embarrassing for me as a kid because I always smelled like some type of oil or liniment. Yeah. Coming up as a child, those scents was voodoo. The kids used to tease me a lot because I would smell like these sense. And then it didn't help a lot either because then I used to always hang out at the funeral home. <laughs> Betty's best friend Toki's parents owned the funeral home. So Betty and Toki spent their childhood observing and learning the trade. We would go to all these different out in the woods and pick up barley. We'd go to Montgomery and pick up barley. Oh my goodness, that was a lifestyle for me. And I would get up early in the morning when there was no school and the first thing I would do was walk from Wilson Quarter right to the funeral home. I hung up all the time right there. I went to so many funerals coming up as a child because every time they have a funeral, we would be right there. Like, you know, like, I'm a part of it. I wish I was, yeah. you know, because yeah. we was help with the bodies and we would help with the hair and the makeup and all this kind of stuff and sleep there at night, you know, with the body and stuff. Because in some reason, they never leave a body alone. Betty liked the traveling. Her family didn't have a car, and Toki's mom took the girls everywhere sometimes all the way to Mobile, to pick up fresh flowers. And Betty was also intrigued by the embalming process. It was just the idea that, you know, all these different chemicals, and I was just fascinated with it. And I would come home, and my grandmother used to make me take my clothes off at the door because I smelled like the embalming fuel. They would smell it, but I never would smell it. I was immune to the scent. When Betty grew up, Toki's mother offered to send her to mortuary school. To this day, I regret not learning that trade. But in 1966, when Betty graduated from high school, white response to the voting rights movement had turned ugly in Camden, and Betty was ready to get away. She graduated on a Sunday and left town the very next day on a bus to New York City. In New York, Betty was finally diagnosed with sickle cell anemia. Her new doctor called back to Alabama to talk with the healers who had kept her alive for 17 years, including Dr. Paul, a white medical doctor, who often wrote prescriptions for herbs and tonics to be purchased from Mr. Wright, the black voodoo doctor. They was like very amazed. He called back 
in Camden and talked to Dr. Paul and he talked to different people that was here, uh, Mr. Gordon Wright. They was keeping me alive all all them years and they wanted to know what was it they was How doing. Did they do it? You know, because they said I should have died years ago. Betty spent her adult years in New York, but her interest in herbs never waned, and she kept learning from her grandmother every time she came home to Alabama. I grained everything I could drag out of her. When she told me about the eucalyptus, told me about black pepper, and then she started me about with the um, lavender, clover, and cooking with curry, and cooking with clover, all these spices, stuff to season your food with, like the garlic, and fresh garlic, and fresh onions, and growing all your own stuff, you know, and squash, and uh, and how to take your seeds and save your seeds and plant them and how they make live corn, 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 you know, they call it hummus. They would take that and take the ashes and they would wash the, the lie off the corn and keep washing the walk to the water got clear. Then they would put it in a jar and they would eat it. You know, so all that kind of stuff. You know, I learned how to do all of that. On one trip home, Betty learned to make soap. She told me to come over that next day, OG's been, and they were going to make soap. And all the ladies was there, and they was making soap, and, you know, they at her house. And then she showed me how we did missing the water with the lye, then letting it cool down to a certain temperature with your, with your lard, just plain lye, water, and, and, and uh, oil. That's all they use. And they would have a big pot of oil there. And then they would have this other pot with the lye and the water. And then when that fire got a certain temperature on that oil, they would take that water and that lye, and one lady would pour it, and the other would stir it. And they would make this big pot, and then they would divide it up, and then it had to get hard, and they would cut it. So everybody went home with a big slate. A soap. They made it for everything. They would use one soap for everything. This communal soap making was traditionally done in the fall to coincide with hog killing. When they would boil down all the fat from the hog, they would use that to do the soap with. They would render all that fat, and then they would make crackling, and then they would take, like, the pig and all that stuff and pickle that and the feet and pickle all that. But every part of that hog would be used, so they would kill, like, three or four hogs at a time, you know. And then they would put everything up in the smokehouse with the meat, the hams, and the bacon and all that. We would go there and help do, you know, because my mom had to have some of that meat and stuff. We would have to bring some back over here to Camden. So, of course, her, all of them would come. All her kids from Mobile would come up. It would be like a big day, and they would cook and bake cakes, and it would be like a big reunion. They would do like a weekend, you know, like a whole weekend. Hall killing day was a big thing. Then in the springtime and then in the summer, they would can vegetables. Then in the summer, they would make jelly. So every season was something. And then they would quilt in between. So it was just always something. And the quilts themselves had their own life cycle. They would use all old clothes, you know, like somebody had something that got too small or something, or somebody would get them a box of clothes. The feed sets and the flower set used to come in pretty sets. So they would take those when they finished with the feed sets and the flower set, and they would wash them, and they would make a dress out of it. And then when the dress got too small or got ragged or when they couldn't use it, they'd take that and put it into a quilt. And they would make pillowcases out of some of the feed sets, and they would make sheets. So when they got too worn, they'd take that and recycle that back into quilts. Betty still makes soap the way her grandmother taught her, using just lye, water, and oil. 
but she also puts her own spin on the process by adding herbs from her garden. Everything I put in my soap, I try to grow. Like this is my rosemary. Uh -huh. I grow my lemons. I got my lemongrass here. I got my lavender. I got my mints and my citrus. And I save the seeds, you know, my lavender and my rosemary when I dry. And rose pillar. Like I didn't want no chemical stuff. So I thought using like stuff that I would bait with, like clover and nutmeg and black pepper and everything that I would have in the kitchen. You know, I would try to use that to put into my soap. I asked Betty if she has a favorite soap. Lemon sage. I really like the lemon sage. After the break, we'll hear about another family tradition that Betty carries on. And this one got some serious attention. Just look at the people. Oh, look at the people. We're back. While Betty lived in New York, she worked for an adult daycare center, and one day she was trying to come up with a craft project when she remembered something her grandmother used to make. My grandma used to make what they call the stick dolls. To tie the sticks together, Betty's grandmother used fabric strips that were usually used to make rag rugs and potholders. So they would take like strips like this, and they would tear it about the size of your finger, and then they would just think, adding different colors to it, just strips of rags. And then they would roll it up on a big roll, and then they would take that and sew those pieces together at times to make stuff with it. So we would take those pieces of rags and wrap around the discs and make our little stick dolls. For the daycare center project, Betty replaced the sticks with pipe cleaners, then added dresses and pantaloons made from the fabric of old quilts. Now I try to use an all-vintage type material. Like I take old quills and so I cut them up because they all raggedy. So I cut them up and use like little quill pieces. These are like from the 1800s. The residents loved the dolls. And one day in 1997, someone else took notice. And I used to be on the subway on my way to work and I would be working on these little pipes cleaner dolls. So it was a lady on the train one day, and she saw me with these little dolls, and she was like, oh, they are so cute. He said, can I buy one from you? She didn't tell me what she worked for. She said, can I just buy one? I said, well, I really, you know, don't have a price. <laughs> so she said, well, here's $10. So I said, okay, and she gave me the $10, and she took the doll. The next thing I knew, Women's Day magazine was calling me up on my jaw and wanted me to do an interview for them for these pipe cleaner dolls, and they wanted to do a whole thing in a March edition. And then after they did these dolls in Women's Day magazine, the adult daycare where I worked, we did a thing for Alzheimer's, and the ones that was in the magazine, we auctioned them off 
and made thousands of dollars for the Alzheimer's because so then they featured them for one year. I couldn't sell these dolls for a whole year because they only came through Women's Day magazine to raise this money for the Alzheimer's things. And then after I got the right to sell them again, yeah. I stuck them away and forgot all about it. A decade after Betty's dolls were featured in Women's Day magazine, she returned to Alabama to care for her aging father. One day, while sorting through boxes, Betty rediscovered the dolls and decided to sell them at Black Belt Treasures Cultural Arts Center in Camden, where she was already selling her soaps. And they then took off, and they just all over Alabama now. They just then made a bit hit. Though Betty has worked hard to keep her family traditions alive, some have been lost along the way. She never did learn how to tap pine trees because her grandmother had stopped doing it. I never did get the sap from the tree because at that time she had said they had started cutting down a lot of stuff and they had started poisoning a lot of stuff. You know, yeah. the people had started spraying it. She started telling me about certain things that you couldn't use because they had started coming by with that big machine. And then she was talking about like with the wall and with the catfish and they poisoned the wall. She was really, really upset about a lot of that stuff. Today, Betty is the only one of her seven siblings who works with herbs, and she only knows a handful of people in Alabama who heal with herbs. There's a lady that I went to down in Andalusia. She called her Herb Lady. So I go down there sometime and get stuff from her. And over in Atmo, on the end of your reservation over there, you could go over there and they would miss up some stuff for you. And there is one person locally, a white lady, Betty tells me, who works with heirloom seeds and has been teaching Betty her methods. Miss Jessie Laverne. Now, she is into a lot of that, and she's been taking me under her wings and teaching me a lot of stuff. And I, with COVID, I really hadn't been able to really sit with her. And so she called me Sunday and want me to come over because she's done planting that, and she want me to see how she do these heirloom seeds. Betty is eager to go. If I miss this opportunity, I'm not going to get it again. Betty's friendship with Jessie echoes that of the black voodoo doctor and white medical doctor of her childhood, who worked together toward healing. And Betty carries something else from her childhood as well, the knowledge she learned at the funeral home. Since returning to Camden, where Toki now runs the family business, Betty has put those skills to use. I did my brother when he died, you know, and I helped with my mom. It's a privilege, she says, to prepare a body for burial to do that last little thing for them. The women of G's Bend, who followed the cycle of the seasons, canning, soap making, quilting, were also the ones to see people through the life cycle, from birthing babies to sitting up with the dying. This part of life. Yeah. My mom did that. Yeah, my mom used to go and sit with people when she knew they was dying. She would always be the one there with them when they closed their eyes. A lot of them, they last me of chicken and dumpling. Two weeks before my mother died, she took me and my brother into the kitchen and showed us how to roll dumpling and how to make chicken and dumpling. She said, I'm going to pass this on to you two right now. now. Everybody want my mom's chicken and dumpling. They call me. Can you make some of your mom's chicken and dumpling? Because nobody making them. <laughs> she make them. You know, a lot of people use a can of chicken soup. She made all her cream soup, her cream of Sarah. She made all that from scratch. Nice and creamy with the flour and the milk and the cream. And then suddenly, it was Betty's turn to sit with her mom at the end. And you know what? The day my mother, and this never happened to me before, when my mom passed that, that, that evening, I was standing there, me and my cousin, Margaret, because she's a nurse. My mom's bed was here. 
Margaret was standing right here at the head, and I was standing right there. And I was holding my mom's hands, and um, my mom looked up at me, and she took a deep breath. And a mist, I saw like a mist, came from my mom. It was just as plain as day. And when, when, when that mist came up, and like it, something changed inside of me. And I remember Margaret saying, she's gone. The last thing I remember about my mom was like a mist, just like that. Alabama Folk is produced by the Alabama Folklife Association with editing and mixing by Matt Whitson. This week, a huge thanks to Betty Anderson for sharing her story with us and to Celine Creswell and Kristen Law at Black Belt Treasures Cultural Arts Center in Camden for introducing us and hosting our conversation. You can find Betty's soaps and dolls as well as traditional arts from across Alabama's Black Belt at blackbelttreasures.com. Our music break featured Oh, Look at the People, sung by Criola Bennett-Petway and Georgianne Bennett-Petway, sisters who grew up singing together in G's Bend. It was recorded by Steve Grauberger in G's Bend in 2002 and appears on Traditional Musics of Alabama, Volume 6, available at alabamafolklife.org. Special thanks to Loretta Petway Bennett for pronunciation. Our theme music is Gotta Move, arranged by Albert Macon of Society Hill, Alabama, and sung by Albert Macon and Robert Thomas. For over 40 years, the two men played their style of boogie and blues together in their native Macon County and at fish fries, parties, and festivals throughout central Alabama. Their music also received national and international attention. Gotta Move was recorded by Phil Foster at the Alabama Folklife Festival in Montgomery in 1992 and is included on Traditional Musics of Alabama, Volume 1, available at alabamafolklife.org. This series is made possible with support from the Alabama Humanities Alliance, Alabama State Council on the Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Learn more at alabamafolklife.org.